is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Cote, and here's what's coming up. Some people died in their homes, buildings or schools collapsed on them. 200 children died um, in school in, um, in KwaZulu-Natal. That's journalist Liz Cummings in Durban, South Africa, talking about the devastating floods there. And the head of the World Health Organization says crises in other countries are not being given the same attention as the war in Ukraine. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Rescue efforts continue in South Africa's flood-hit KwaZulu-Natal province. Hundreds of people have died in landslides, floods, and building collapses. Journalist Liz Cummings in Durban spoke with viewers Kate Pound Dawson about the disaster a short time ago. Uh, the latest official count from our provincial governments is that 306 people have lost their lives so far in these deadly floods um, that hit us when the rains um, came down really hard on Monday night um, and, did, and didn't stop. Of course, it had started on Friday and then just continued for days, but Monday it really hit us hard. Um, some people died in their homes, buildings or schools collapsed on them. 200 children died um, in school in, um, in KwaZulu-Natal, um, out in one of the um, up in northern parts of the province, and others were trapped in their waterlogged homes. Some died in their vehicles, um, trapped in, 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 in the floodwaters on the roads uh, while they were driving home. Um, so, yeah, hundreds of people have lost their homes, both informal tin houses and solid brick homes that have been standing for many years. Um, others, uh, some of the homes collapsed completely and others were severely damaged um, with uh, flooding and, and mudslides. Um, on Monday night already, rescue operations um, had started and volunteers were on social media calling for uh, boats and uh, rubber duck boats to assist um, to get to people who were stuck in their homes and in buildings uh, across the city. So what is the government doing on on rescuing victims and, and the recovery effort? Uh, is, it, uh, is it largely led by volunteers or is, um, the, is the national government and the provincial government operating? Oh, uh, yeah, the area has been declared, the province has been declared a, a, a provincial state of disaster, which then legislatively kicks in a lot of different processes, which means the various organs of states from national government right down to provincial will step in and have stepped in um, to find the um, people who are still missing. It's, it's unclear how many are, are still need to be found, but both the government and um, private sector philanthropic organizations as well as just ordinary civilian volunteers have stepped in and are, are helping where they can to, to rescue people who may still be stuck and also to get uh, necessary food and water and uh, to people. Water is the biggest concern at the moment. Uh, large parts of the city will run about a 30 kilometer radius, kilometer radius around the city as well as some coastal towns um, are without water. Some have been without water since Monday. Um, fortunately, there are quite a few properties in some areas that have their own private boreholes and they've opened up their homes to people to come and collect water. Um, the government is providing water tankers um, to supply water to residents uh, across the various areas and is working around the clock to try and um, get the water flowing again. Um, massive reservoirs have been compromised, water pipes have been damaged, um, roads have been completely washed away. 
So there's a lot of work that's, um, that, that they are busy with. Now, this is being called the worst natural disaster in South Africa's modern history. And that I understand some areas have gotten more than 450 millimeters of rain and possibly more to come. Was the government prepared for this, uh, this disaster, for this rain, this flooding? Um, Kate, uh, yes, you're quite right on the on the rainfall there. Um, and yes, our, one of our award-winning local philanthropic organisation founders, Gift of the Givers, Imtiaz Suleiman, I spoke to him just before I got on the call with you, um, says to me, yes, um, as far as he's concerned, this is the worst natural disaster in the history of South Africa. It, it became clear even anecdotally from Monday when, when these rains and, and on Tuesday that the, the floods of 87, which I personally lived through, um, it, it's way worse than that previous disaster, which, which previously had that title. Um, I posed the question about readiness to government. Um, they have not responded. However, what I can say is that the government has indicated that this flooding disaster has been unprecedented. Um, even professional private sector rescue operators have indicated that there were just not enough rescue teams and equipment to immediately attend to every call for help. That was reporter Liz Cummins in Durban speaking with my colleague Kate Pound Dawson. The Rwandan government today signed a migration and economic development partnership with Britain. The partnership will enable the UK to send to Rwanda illegal migrants who are seeking asylum. The UK Home Secretary Preeti Patel is in Rwanda for the signing ceremony. Eugene Uwimana has more from the capital, Kigali. Under the agreement, single males who enter Britain illegally will be sent to Rwanda where their asylum claims will be processed. London we allocate about one hundred fifty eight million US dollars to fund the program. The British Home Secretary Priti Patel explained the importance of the agreement. We want to break, we want to stop this this vile trade, this inhumane trade where criminal gangs and smugglers are just profiteering and making so much money and doing all sorts of inhumane things to people that are coming over in lorries and also in boats. Thousands of migrants have crossed from France to Britain in small boats over the past few years. The Grandin Foreign Affairs Minister Vince Abiruta said the government has a strong team in place to scrutinize the migrants' cases even if they might face criminal charges in their home countries. And he added that the funds provided by the UK will be used to create training and opportunities for them. Those are stateless people who don't have any status in the UK or... And we need to, we just decided to give our contribution to a solution to illegal migration. And uh, we are going to provide these people with a minimum for them to be able to live a dignified life. We are going to invest in uh, skill development. We are going to invest in social economic integration of these people. In a press conference after signing the agreement, Patel said the deal excludes Ukrainian refugees because she said... They are covered under a separate policy. In Britain, some opposition politicians and rights activists have criticized the plan as expensive, unworkable, and inhumane. Ejen Uimana, for VOA News, Chigali, Rwanda. The Somali government blames a 30-year-old international arms embargo for its failure to defeat terror groups in the country. The government said its hands are tied in getting enough weapons to secure the country and its population. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. 
Speaking at the 62nd anniversary of the Somali National Army, President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, known as Farmajo, said his country finds it difficult to win the war against terrorist groups because of its inability to buy military hardware. <laughs> Speaking in Somalia on Tuesday, the president says the government has advocated for lifting the arms embargo because the enemy, the Al-Qaeda terror group, is not under any sanctions. He says that with the country's 3,300 kilometers coastline, terrorist groups can get goods from all these entry points. For us, he says, our hands are tied and we cannot buy weapons, even if we get the money to buy them so that we can defeat the enemy. The arms embargo was imposed in 1992 after the collapse of the central government and the country disintegrated into clan war. In the past few years, Farmaja's government called for an end to the sanctions so it can fight the Al-Shabaab militants and stabilize the country. The arms embargo is used to push countries and non-state actors to improve their behavior in the interest of global peace and security. Somalia is among six African countries, Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo, Libya, South Sudan and Sudan, under a UN arms embargo. These countries are experiencing internal conflict that has killed tens of thousands and displaced millions. Confidence Makari is a Nigeria-based geopolitical security analyst. He says defeating terrorism without weapons can be challenging. And so, yes, logically, if you stop a country from getting weapons to prosecute uh, terrorism or, or non-state actors, it's really going to impact on their ability to, to reach the country of terrorists. So on one hand, you're trying to prevent you, the, the person that is placing the embargo, you're trying to prevent uh, the loss of innocent lives by preventing the military from using arms to kill its citizens. But on the other hand, what your actions are doing is to strengthen the other people who, of course, do not have uh, the, they do not follow established norms. Last November, the United Nations Security Council renewed the arms ban on Somalia and it be reviewed again next November. The resolution says the ban does not apply to weapons, military equipment, military training and financial support intended to develop the Somali National Security Forces. Somali government forces supported by the African Union forces have been successful in pushing Al-Shabaab out of many towns and villages, but the group continues to carry out hit and run attacks against security forces. The militant group has vowed to topple the internationally recognized government. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus has slammed the global community for its focus on the war in Ukraine and for giving less attention to crises elsewhere, including in his home country of Ethiopia, possibly because those suffering are not white. The whole attention to Ukraine is very important, of course, because it impacts the whole world. But even a fraction of it is not being given to Tigray, Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, and the rest. A fraction. And I need to be blunt and honest that the world is not treating the human race same way. Some are more equal than others. And when I say this, it pains me because I see it very difficult to accept, but it's happening. He was speaking in a virtual press conference from Geneva on Wednesday. He said Ethiopia's Tigray region faces a dire situation after more than 17 months of conflict with federal forces. He blamed Ethiopian and Eritrean forces for blocking aid. 
in Tigray, Ethiopia, it's now three weeks since a truce was called after one of the longest blockades in modern history. There is a need for 100 trucks per day continuing life-saving supplies to Tigray. Since the truce, there should have been at least 2,000 trucks going into Tigray. But there has been only 20 trucks in total, representing 1% of the need. In effect, the siege by the Ethiopian and Eritrean forces continues. To avert the humanitarian calamity and hundreds of thousands more people from dying, we need unfettered humanitarian access from those reinforcing the siege, as well as medicines, the immediate need for food and fuel and other basic services to be allowed into the region. Tedros is from Tigray and served as Ethiopia's foreign minister and health minister when the Tigray People's Liberation Front dominated the national government. Ethiopia's current government has complained to the WHO saying Tedros was using his office to advance his political interest at the expense of Ethiopia and that he is an active member of the TPLF. The UN Special Advisor to Libya, Stephanie Williams, is in Cairo for talks with representatives of Libya's two rival governments. The UN is working to find a political solution to the deep divisions in Libya and create a unified government. Libya has had two rival governments since March when the Eastern-based parliament appointed Fathi Bashaga to replace the Tripoli-based Prime Minister Abdul Hamid al-Biba, renewing a standoff between the east and west of the country. Wolfgang Putztai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, discussed the chances for reaching that goal with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Al-Shenawi. Williams has fortunately understood that it would be a very bad idea to start again from scratch with the work on the constitutional foundation for elections. Now she invites the talks without questioning the 12th Amendment to the Constitutional Declaration. This amendment was negotiated between the House of Representatives and the High Council of State in January and February. It provides the foundation for the roadmap to elections in 18 months. We may debate if this is a good idea to delay the elections for 18 months, but nevertheless, this is what they decided with this amendment. This amendment was approved by the House of Representatives on February 10 with overwhelming majority, just before an appointment of Bashaga. Actually, this was a precondition by the High Council of State before accepting Bashaga as a prime minister. The plan was to establish thereafter a commission of 24 from each of the Libyan regions to work on the controversial points of the 2017 draft constitution. So far, so fine. But after Bashaga failed to enter Tripoli, the High Council of State rejected this amendment. If both HOR and HCS now really come together to work on the constitution, this would be certainly a positive move. But one must not forget that Beba has tasked his own ministerial commission to work on the legal foundation for elections. What are the possible scenarios if a political compromise proved to be unattainable in Libya? The uh, government of national stability, Bashaga government, Deputy Prime Minister Ali Al-Qwatrani, he is from the east, is already very active in establishing the regional branch of the Bashaga government in Benghazi. The same is done, to a more limited extent, by the Fesani Deputy Prime Minister Salem al-Sadma in Sepa. So if the, the Beba does not step back in the next days or in a few weeks, the Lenay will probably really block again the coastal road and eventually also the oil terminals with all the negative impact that we've discussed before, as it was already threatened by the LNA 5 plus 5 Joint Military Commission. 
if Bashar is not able to take over power within the next weeks, his personal influence will certainly fade away, as his credibility will be lost in the East and in the West. The Eastern branch, but the Eastern branch of his government of national stability under Al-Qadrani will probably act as something like a local government, while the LNA will establish something like a border west of Sirte, without calling it so, of course. A border west of Sirte would include all the oil fields in the oil crescent to the eastern influence, which means under the control of the Libyan National Army. I doubt that the Misrata and the Western militias will accept this in the long run. So this could eventually lead to a major escalation between the East and the West, a fight over oil and money again. If Bashar would be able to take over, he would also face tough challenges, especially on the economic side, but also over security. To conclude, I would say there are dark clouds on the sky of Libya. Would that mean Libya could witness renewed fighting again? This could mean that over months, if the situation develops as described, Libya could see a renewed fighting over the domination of the oil crescent, over the domination of the Sirte Pesen, a major civil war again. That was Wolfgang Putztai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya. He was speaking with my colleague Mohamed El Shanawi. The International Organization for Migration has warned that the Horn of Africa in East Africa is in the grip of the worst drought in decades, with an estimated 15 million people severely affected in Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia, and South Sudan. Tens of thousands of hectares of crops have been destroyed, and 1.4 million livestock died late last year due to drought in Kenya alone, according to the UN agency. Reporter Angie Omar discussed the fastest way to approach the crisis in those countries with Michelle Gavin, the Ralph Bunch Senior Fellow for Africa Policy Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. The most important thing is to ensure that there's an adequate response to these appeals for humanitarian aid. So there are agencies that know how to reach people uh, facing acute food insecurity, but they are under-resourced right now. And that's happening you know, because of donor fatigue. That's happening because uh, so much of the world is distracted by the terrible war in Ukraine. And so you know, ensuring that this crisis, its magnitude and its potential potential to get even worse is at the top of mind and agenda is kind of step one in sort of an immediate sense. But it's equally important that diplomats keep doing work to diffuse conflict in the parts of East Africa where, where this crisis is most acute because, you know, conflict has contributed to the situation. Certainly, you know, most notably in Ethiopia, where some of the worst famine conditions can be directly attributed to civil conflict and denial of humanitarian aid as a weapon of war. And so it's really important that the diplomatic work to try and de-escalate conflict go hand in hand with a humanitarian response. Millions of people in Somalia are at risk of famine, with young children being the most vulnerable to the worsening drought. According to the World Food Program and Food and Agriculture Organization, Somalia is facing famine conditions at the perfect storm of poor rain, skyrocketing food prices, and a huge funding shortfalls leaves almost 40% of Somalis on the brink. What could be done to save Somalia from this catastrophe? You're absolutely right. It is a horrible stew of factors that have contributed to this situation. Everything from climate change and this uh, extraordinary set of failed rainy seasons to the locust 
debt crisis uh, a few years ago, and now inflation that uh, the whole world is experiencing, and of course, then the food shortages and increase in food prices. You know, a lot of Somalis have depended on assistance from the World Food Program. The World Food Program used to get more than half of its wheat from Ukraine. So the whole world is sort of readjusting to a set of new realities, and the consequences are being felt immediately by the Somali people. The United Nations World Food Program had recently warned that the shortages of water and pasture are devastating livelihoods, forcing families from their homes across the regions in southern and southeastern Ethiopia. Could hunger and drought crises create more refugees' problems in the region? Absolutely. When migration as a matter of survival, right, uh, may be one of the strategies that that people uh, are forced to turn to as they cope with drought and with scarcity. But of course, with scarcity comes competition over resources. And so new migrations in a context where there's already scarcity and competition can lead to conflict. So this is a, it's not just a humanitarian crisis. It's a matter of conflict prevention and trying to bring peace to troubled areas and maintain peace in areas that are not currently in conflict. So I do think um, it's important, again, to, to look at some of the potential downstream consequences of failing to respond in a comprehensive and urgent way to the desperate needs on the ground. That was Michelle Gavin with the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S. and former U.S. Ambassador to Botswana and the Southern African Development Community of SADC. She was speaking with reporter Angie Omar. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Corte in Washington. For all latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at viewingnews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's Newsmaker Interview Program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com slash PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. Just send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or connect with us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Carol Castiel VOA or on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. 
Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African Beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music, from bubu music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, Afrobeat to Dumbolo and Makosa to Kwaito. The African Beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 09.05 and 20.05 UTC, right after the international news. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the 